let's do, uh, this morning I'm going to talk about being people of mission, being people on mission. It's it might feel like a lot of doing, but we're not human doings. <laughs> uh, we're human beings. And sometimes, or the only way something like this is going to play itself out in a, in a healthy way under God is if we remember um, to just be, to be. So in the spirit of that, let's just take some time. I'm just going to give some time of silent reflection. You know, the scripture says to be still and know that he is God. And that first word gets me to be, to be. So let's be still together. And then I'll wrap it up. Lord, we are grateful for stillness, for silence, for quiet. Lord, there's so many voices in our life. Life can be noisy and loud. Lord, bring us back to this place often of refreshment, of nourishment, of peace. Lord, may that be our wellspring of life. May we live from this place of bold confidence in who you are, what it means for us, and what it means for our neighbors. Lord, in the next few minutes, um, be gracious to me as I want desperately to communicate something of value and of truth. We don't just want to hear these words. We want to be changed by them. We expect, Lord, that somehow by your Spirit, you would transform us in a way that um, we would be transformational agents uh, where we live, where we work. Lord, we need you and your grace and your spirit. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Is Jesus the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we be looking for someone else? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, the one who's going to bring salvation, or should we be looking for someone else? That was the question that John the Baptist asked. It's a really important question. I don't think that question scares God. It's a question we should be asking often. We should be okay with that question. Is Jesus the one? Is Jesus the one sent by God to bring salvation. Now, for John the Baptist, there was a lot riding on that question. My goodness, he had a lot riding on that question. He was in prison, pretty sure he was going to be killed in some way for what he believed, and he's put all his hope and all his faith and all his trust in this Jesus from Nazareth, and he sends his disciples to find Jesus to ask that question. It's a good question. Is Jesus the Messiah we've been expecting? Are you the Messiah, Jesus, that we've been expecting? Or should we be looking for someone else? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the King of Israel, the King of the world? Now, John's Gospel, which we're going to look at eventually here this morning, was written 
to answer that question. Especially John chapter 20. So I want that question to be in the back of our minds this morning. Is Jesus the one? Is he the one? Is he the Messiah? The last few weeks, it's my understanding that you've been uh, thinking about your church and your church life, and you want to be committed to certain values, and you want to be committed to certain goals. It's good to have goals in life. Recently, my son turned 12 years old. He had a birthday party. And uh, I overheard, he had some friends over, they were having some cake, and I overheard one of his friends, his name's Evan, and he said to everyone around the table that he has gone two weeks straight wearing the same pair of underwear. (laughs) Yeah. And he was excited to communicate this to the group, and the boys were pretty riveted by this story. And uh, my goodness, it's good to have goals. It's good to have something to shoot for. You want to be about something. But this church wants to be about something too. You want to be about something. And so in the last few weeks, you've been thinking about that. You've been thinking about, you want to be these things. A people of prayer. A people of love and grace. A people of generosity and service. And today... We're going to talk about a people of mission. What does it mean, what does it look like to be people of mission? Here's what I'd like you to do. Greet someone near you with these words, with this word, shalom. Turn to somebody near you and say, shalom. 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 Now, shalom means peace. Um, In Israel, the Jewish people use this greeting, or Jewish people use this greeting often, uh, for three reasons, actually. Uh, The first one is it's a common greeting. It's just what you say. Shalom. It's like, what's up? Peace. Shalom. In fact, in southern Israel, uh, near Masada, they say, um, Shalom, y'all. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever been there. But uh, yeah, it's, it's near the Red Sea, actually. Just keep going south. No, but it's true. It's a common greeting. You hear it all the time. I had a friend who worked at a Jewish community center. Uh, his name was Kirk. He wasn't Jewish, but he worked there. And he answered the phones. And he had to answer the phone, Shalom, this is Kirk. And I just got a kick out of this. So I'd call him throughout the day all the time, just, Shalom, this is Kirk. Shalom, this is Kirk. And I wouldn't talk to him. I would just, just like hearing the greeting. And I liked hearing him say it. And I knew it made him a little uneasy. It's weird. Shalom, this is Kirk. But it's a common greeting. The second reason the Jewish people use this uh, greeting, especially in the morning, is that it's a greeting of reconciliation. It's a morning greeting of reconciliation, and it means this. There's nothing between us. Um, We're good. We're fine. I have no grievance against you. There's no grievances here. I have nothing against you. It's a, in, in the morning, shalom means we're good. It's a reconciling word. Reconcile. There's peace between us. I grew up in uh, the woods by myself. We lived in a hill at the top of the, 
or in a house on the top of a hill, you can see not a lot of neighbors. I mean, I had friends, just not a lot of them. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had a pretty big imagination. You had to keep yourself entertained. And I can remember, um, I don't remember how old I was, maybe 10 or so. I hope not, maybe a little younger. I had, um, I had these bike paths. You go to the next slide real quickly. You can see our driveway is pretty steep, and we live up on this hill. And I actually had um, some bike trails throughout around the house. And I would work up these stories in my mind. And I'll never forget uh, this one day, I was trying to go after the world championship. Once again, this is about goals. And I, I knew I had a chance. I was good. I didn't know how good I was. <laughs> And so I'm, thank you, blessing. And so I'm going through uh, all of these trails, and um, I get to the, the American final. It's a pretty big deal. I mean, I don't want to make, it's not a huge deal, but as you can imagine for me, this was the American championship, and I was going to win. I was going after it. And so I, I went through, and the little guy from Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, crosses the finish line. It was a photo finish, but after review, sure, I won the championship. Well, what this meant is it qualified me for the world championships. And I was really excited about this. Um, in fact, the world champion at the time was a guy who was from France. Now, I don't know why he was from France, except my dad didn't say nice things about people from France. I don't know why. He just didn't. And so for me, this guy was going to be from France that I was going to go up against. And so here I am in the world championships against the guy from France, and I'm thinking, I have to do something special to win this race. There's no way I can win this race by myself. So what I decided to do was take the brakes off of my bike. <laughs> because I didn't even want to be tempted to stop. I mean, this is a, this is, it was the world championship. OK, so I get lined up next to the guy. The race goes, and I'm making my way through this. It was. It was as fast as I have gone around the trail before, as you can imagine. And I needed it because this guy was good. And I caught, it was another photo finish. After review, I did, in fact, win the world championship. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm finished with that race, and I'm going to go inside. It was kind of getting dark. And so I remember I went in the house, put the bike in the garage, went in the house, went to sleep. I don't know, woke up the next morning, summertime, probably slept in a little bit. And as I was walking down the steps, I could hear, I could hear crying, moaning. Somebody was in pain, so I went for cereal. So I went over, and I got the cereal. And um, now I'm sitting at the little island there in our kitchen. You know, somebody's definitely hurting, right? And I should go see what this is. And so I remember I walked over. and. Sure enough, my sister, she was in a lot of pain. She was cut up pretty good. Like there were, um, well, what had happened was she took the bike the next morning to work. And she had to go down that driveway. Um, luckily, you know, for her, uh, there, were no there was no traffic. We don't have a ton of traffic, so no cars were in the way. But there was a cornfield. I don't know if you ever ran through corn before, but if you're going through corn on a bike really fast, um, yeah, you just, she went about 25 rows deep <laughs> in the corn. Um, so here's the thing. I uh, had an opportunity to share that story in a sermon last summer. And I had never told her that I knew what happened to the bike. 
And in a setting like that, I looked at her and I said, Shalom. <laughs> Shalom. Yep, it's a reconciling word. There's no grievances. There's nothing between you and the other person. When you say it in the morning, you're saying we're good, we're fine. Here's the other reason why the Jewish people use the word shalom. It reminds them of their story. The big story that gives shape and meaning to their lives. And the story goes something like this. When you say shalom, this is the story you're remembering. In the beginning was shalom. There was peace. There was harmony between God and each other and creation. But the world is no longer like that. But someday, shalom will return. Someday there will be shalom again. And so when you say the word shalom, you're saying, remember when there was shalom? Right now our world is broken. It's falling apart. It's tearing at its seams. But someday shalom will come. They, they say this word. And every time they say this word, it reminds them of their story. Now here's the thing. All people... All people live life based on a big story that gives shape and direction to our lives. Whether we realize it or not, all of us are living life based on a story. It's not whether or not you believe a story, it's which story you believe in. Alistair McIntyre, he's a well-known uh, philosopher. He teaches at Notre Dame University, and he wrote a really important book called After Virtue. And what this book is about is he makes the case that you can't really talk about virtue or you can't really talk about morality if you don't talk about story because morality, virtue, being a good person only makes sense when you think about the story you're living out. Remember, it's not whether or not you believe a story. It's which story you believe in. And Alistair McIntyre says something in this book, and I, gotta, I didn't understand most of this book. It's very complicated. Um, but I got to this part, and I underlined it, and I carry the book around so people think I know what I'm talking about. I under, when I read this sentence, it changed everything for me. Alistair McIntyre says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? We are... We're always asking this, we might not realize it, but we're always asking this question. When we think about what we're going to do, we're actually connecting that to some story that gives shape and direction to our lives. It's how we live. It's how all people live, based on a story. Yeah. Leslie Newbegin, a famous missionary in India, he said it like this. He said, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my story is a part? We can't even think about what it means to be human unless we take that step back and we say, well, what is the story of which my life is a part? On what story am I basing my life? What story do I live in and live out? Remember a few years ago we had an election? That was a good time. We, uh, <laughs> we elected a president. Now what I'm about to say for the next few minutes is not political in any way. I'm smarter than I look. 
But we elected a president. And if you remember that, this is, this is when we hear it the most. This is when we hear it the most. It's not just people running for president. It's people trying to connect us to a story. What is the story? How are they the solution to have a better story? Uh, Donald Trump run, ran for president. Do you remember his slogan? Does anybody remember Donald Trump's slogan? Make America great again. It was really memorable. And this is what Donald Trump did. Is he, he reminded us that there was a time, according to him, when America was great. It was a great place. And it's no longer great now. But if you elect me, I will make America great again. We will make America great again. And greatness will fill the land. Make America great again. It was very memorable, but realize it was connecting him to a story. We were great. We're no longer great. We need to be great again. That's easy to remember. Do you remember there was another person running for president? Her name was Hillary Clinton. Does anybody remember her slogan? What was it? Okay, okay. I forgot that this, I forgot, I forget sometimes that this church actually does give and take. <laughs> okay, uh, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay, here was her phrase. Stronger together. Stronger together. Not as memorable. In fact, there's been books written about it was really the slogans running against each other. One we remembered, one nobody remembers. Stronger together. And here's what her story was. There was a time when our fabric was stronger. We were together. We were a people who were together. And, and that gave us strength. But we're no longer together now. We're divided. It's a very divisive place to be. But elect me and we will be together again. And we'll be stronger. Here's the main point. It's not whether or not a story shapes your life. It's knowing which story is shaping your life. All people live life based on a grand story that gives life meaning and direction. As Christians, we believe the Bible, the biblical account of history, is the true, capital T, true story of the world. And living in and living out that story shapes every area of our lives. Another way to say it is that the biblical story trumps all other stories. Or you could say, it is hilarity to think that other stories, yeah, see? It is hilarity to think that there are other stories more important than this one. Okay. Let's review the biblical story. I'm going, to, this, I'm going to run through the entire biblical story. With shalom at the center. And then we will read John chapter 20. And if you have a handout, you're going to need that. Inside there's the, the, the text, John chapter 20. Do you need one? Yeah. So we're going to review the biblical story, the entire biblical story, with shalom at the center... And then we're going to read John chapter 20 and see how in Jesus the story is retold and fulfilled. First, let's remember Genesis 1 and 2. 
In the beginning, God speaks the world into being. He says it, and it happens. God creates man and woman in his image. We all bear the image of God. That's what separates us from all other parts of creation is that we bear God's image. Remember, after God does all of the speaking and creating, he finishes the work of creation, and then he rests. It's a very important part of the story. He finishes the work of creation, and then he rests. God breathes life into Adam. He gives him the breath of life, his spirit into Adam, and he gives him a job to do. He places Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam is a gardener. It's a really important part of the story. Adam is in a garden, and he's a gardener. Adam has a job. He's to take care of the garden. He's to take care of the garden. He's to have responsible dominion over the earth. One of the ways he exercises that responsibility is he names things. He gives things their proper name. From Adam, Eve is created. And we get that first poem or song in the Bible where Adam says, it is not good, or God says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the one thing that's not good. In Genesis 1, you have all this, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Humans, it is very good. But there's this one time, it is not good that man is alone. Takes Adam creates Eve, and then Adam says, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They're created for intimacy. They are naked and not ashamed. There is peace. There is shalom between God and people, between people and people, and between people and and creation, shalom. This is the way it's supposed to be. Cornelius Planiga is a writer. He defines shalom this way. I think it's really important and helpful. He says that the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight, that shalom. We call it peace. But it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between nations. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight the way it's supposed to be. Doesn't last long. Genesis chapter 3. We rebel against God's word and God's rule. In fact, the text says that what drove us to do that is that we want to be like God. 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 Plantinga says it like this. He says, the real human predicament, as scripture reveals, 
is that inexplicably, irrationally, we all keep living our lives against what's good for us. We might define evil as any spoiling of shalom, any deviation from the way God wants things to be. We were created for shalom, to live in shalom. And for some reason, against our reason, we do often, we do things that we know inexplicably, irrationally. We live our lives against what's good for us. And shalom is spoiled. This intimate, harmonious relationship, these intimate, harmonious relationships are broken. First, between God and people, because when that relationship breaks, everything breaks. We want to be like God deep down. We want control of our life. We want to say what will, uh, what will happen. Remember right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, what do they do? They hide. They hide. Remember God's first question to them after they hide is, where are you? And even in that question, we see this God who's going to pursue his creation, who's going to get back what was rightfully his in the first place. They're hiding they're afraid, and God's first response is, where are you? What have you done? The relationship between God and people are broken. The relationship between people and people are, is broken as well. They hide from each other. They physically hide from each other, but they also hide from each other by blaming each other. Now they're going to rule over each other, and that's going to get interesting. The first main event after the fall of man is what? A brother kills a brother. So we see that this relationship is broken as well. And then also the relationship between people and creation is broken. Remember the ground is cursed. There are thorns and thistles on the land. They still have to work. Work was part of shalom. It was part of the goodness of creation. And now it it's toil. It's difficult. In Romans 8, it says that all of creation is groaning as a result of the fall, waiting for the sons of man to be revealed. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. I love this quote by Peter Kreeft. He's a philosopher at Boston College. He says this, what happened in Eden may be hard to understand, but it makes everything else understandable. What happened in Eden, and it's an interesting story. We have talking snakes. We have a tree that it's a little confusing. We have other things that are happening. That This story, in some ways, is difficult to get our minds around. And yet, when we begin to see life through that story, it makes everything else understandable. This deep desire for intimate relationships with each other, and yet it's so hard for us to get there. We want to know God, but something's between us. We want to know each other, but something's going on. We want to be good stewards of our land and creation and the earth, and yet we just can't seem to get it right. 
it makes everything else understandable. The story of a good but loving, the story of a good but fallen creation in need of redemption is the story that shapes this community in profound ways. A good creation, fallen and broken, in need of redemption. The rest of the biblical story is about God getting back what was rightfully his in the first place. God creates and chooses a people longing for the day when the world will be made right again and the people of God will be a blessing to all the nations. This story takes many twists and turns in the Old Testament, but that is the backdrop, the big picture, the controlling story that we need to keep in mind as we read the Bible. Which brings us to the story of Jesus in, in John's gospel. All right, here we go. John chapter 20. Quick review of John's gospel. Remember, John's gospel starts with this. In the beginning was the word. John does that very intentionally because he wants his readers right away to say that he's telling a creation story. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1. In the beginning, the word, John chapter 1. Remember, Jesus is killed on a Friday. And what does he say on the cross? He says, it is finished. It is finished. God finished the work he was doing in Genesis 2 of creation. He said it was finished. And now Jesus is saying, the work of redemption is finished. Do you remember um, Jesus' question on the cross was this, God, why have you forsaken me? It's Adam to God, Jesus to God saying, where are you? Jesus goes purposely to the place where God isn't so that we never have to be separated from him. But that's the same question. God in the garden. Adam, where are you? Jesus on the cross. God, where are you? Remember Jesus wears a crown of thorns. It's the curse being reversed. Jesus on the cross reverses the curse of the garden. And it's symbolized by him going to the cross with a crown of thorns. Remember, Jesus dies on a Friday and he's laid to rest on the Sabbath on a Saturday. And that's where the story picks up. John chapter 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Now, of course, this story takes place 
in a garden. Thinking he was the gardener, of course he's the gardener. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Thinking he was the gardener, the gardener of Eden, Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus said to her, Mary, now remember, this is the God, this is the Adam who gives us our name. Woman, why are you crying? Not woman, Mary. This is the God who knows us by our name. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Roboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, it's a very important point. This is Sunday. This is the first day of the week. This is new creation. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, and what were the disciples doing? They're hiding. Of course they're hiding. With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. And he said shalom for three reasons. One, it's a common greeting. What's up? <laughs> Disciples, peace. In the morning, it's a reconciling word. There's no grievances here. There's nothing between us. Right away, Jesus is reminding the disciples, yes, you're scared and you're hiding, but I've come after you, and we're good. We're fine. We're reconciled. There's nothing between us. Peace. Shalom. He also says shalom because it reminds them of their story. We were made for shalom. The world is broken in need of shalom, and Jesus is bringing shalom. He's the shalom bringer. He's restoring shalom. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, shalom. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Here it is again. We have a job to do. We are being sent. The Genesis mandate is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now Jesus' new creation is sending us again. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And why was Jesus sent? That should be our question. Well, he was sent to bring healing. He was sent to bring reconciliation. He was sent to bring freedom. He was sent to bring shalom. 
And now he's sending us to do the same. We are to be Jesus for the world. To go where people are in pain, fear, hiding, hurting, in need of healing, hope, reconciliation. That's our task. The next question we should ask is, how in the world would we ever be able to do that? We're to be Jesus for the world. We're to be as Jesus for the world. We're to bring hope and healing and reconciliation, to go to these places in pain where people are in fear and they're hurting and hiding. There's no way we could possibly do that. That's exactly what we're supposed to say. There is no way that you could do that. You want to be a people of mission? You can't be a people of mission. You can't. And the story doesn't end there. Again, Jesus said, Shalom, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. God breathes his life back into his people. Now we have the spirit of, living, of the living God inside of us. There's no way by ourselves we could ever do the kinds of things Jesus did for the world. And yet, he will live through us by his spirit. I know you went through a whole sermon series on the Holy Spirit. To me, this is as simple as it gets. This, as simple as it gets, the spirit empowers us to do what we could not do. And he, if we're going to be people of mission, it's going to be by the empowering and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are sent, commissioned to be Jesus for the world. The Holy Spirit empowers us for that task. It is impossible without Jesus living in you and through you. Don't try this without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, real quickly. Here are three steps or implications perhaps for this, for me, for us, for being people of mission. Uh, first, I think the first step, if you're going to be a people of mission, a people on mission, the first step would be establishing a community of shalom, a shalom-shaped community a place where people live in harmony with each other, where people come for healing, reconciliation, and hope, a place where people don't hide but heal. It's not a perfect place for sure. It's a gracious place. You've talked about that already. But here's the truth. The best apologetic we have to offer the world, the best defense of a loving God that we have to offer the world is a community that loves each other and cares for each other well. The most powerful witness we have to an unbelieving world is a diverse community of people who are united in Christ. In fact, that was Jesus' prayer right before he died, that they would know that they are his disciples by the way that they love each other. So first, this would be a community of shalom where people are reconciled to God and to each other 
and care deeply about creation. But second, your mission is to point people to the shalom-bringing God wherever he places you. First, you start a shalom-centered community, and then it doesn't end there. Your mission is to point people to the shalom-bringing God wherever he places you. And that starts now, today, right after the service. You create outposts of shalom in your communities. I'm imagining um, Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember in Narnia, it's always winter but never Christmas. Oh, that's terrible. Always winter but never Christmas. And then the lion shows up. And I'm realizing, if you don't know what the Chronicles of Narnia is, this is really weird. Okay, this is a story. It's a children's story. It's always winter and never Christmas. And then the lion shows up. It's a good story. And, um, well, wherever the lion goes, the, slow, the snow just melts away. Wherever the lion is, the snow just melts Away, And I'm imagining you leaving this place and you're setting up these outposts of shalom and somehow the snow is melting away and the, the darkness is becoming bright. You bring light out of the darkness. This is a central theme to John's gospel. You bring light out of darkness wherever God places you. But third, you look for ways in which your community could offer resources to helping spread the good news around the world. So first, you have this shalom community, but it's not just for you, it's for others. And so you're thinking about creating these outposts of shalom where you're bringing light to dark places, healing and hope and reconciliation and restoration wherever God places you. And then as you begin to pray and you begin to um, have deep community life and you begin to think about the needs of the world, God will begin to call certain people, not everyone, but some of you, uh, to go to other places, to, to take the resources that you have other places. Sometimes that's financial resources. Sometimes that's actual people as resources to go. Um, but you offer your resources to God. Your time, your prayer, your finances. And then perhaps some of you begin to get this calling, this yearning to be sent on specific missions for God around the world. So first, God forms a shalom-centered, gospel-centered community to be Jesus for the world. Second, the community spreads and invites more to join. Third, the community is called upon by God to offer resources to his mission around the world. I'm going to tell you a story of my son, Nathan. There he is. This is a few years ago. He's not here today. And I apologize for that. Usually when my kids are here, I don't talk for this long. <laughs> so here's my son, Nathan. And he, um, well, he tried soccer. And uh, I don't know, just sports, they're just not that interesting to him. And what, what, so what Nathan loved about soccer, go to the next picture. What Nathan loved about soccer was um, falling on the ground. He just loved to fall on the ground. He didn't have to be near, he didn't have to be on the field, he would fall. But if he was, he didn't have to be near the ball, he would fall. He was just always on the ground. But the other thing he loved to do was talk about the game. And so during the game, he would just be explaining what was happening. That was his favorite part. And he would run over to us on the sideline and just explain little nuances that we might have missed. 
So I don't know if you just saw this, but she kicked it over here, then I went over here, then I fell down, and then I, and we're like, yeah, Nathan, we did see that. Well, this created a little bit of a crowd because people enjoyed hearing Nathan talk about the game. So I noticed that other people would leave their games to come over and watch Nathan as he t commentated the game. Well, the final game of the year, um, he hadn't scored a goal. I don't know if he had kicked the ball. Um, <laughs> but I'll never forget, it was uh, last game of the year, and the ball was in front of the goal. Nobody was around. Nathan was on his feet, and he had run out of things to say. And so we're all just screaming, Nathan, kick the ball, kick the ball, you got to do this. And he's looking around like, okay. And so he runs towards the ball, kicks it in the goal, and scores a goal. And as you can imagine, the place goes crazy. Everybody's cheering. Nathan makes a beeline for us, but he doesn't want to talk to us. He passes us. All his other fans are here, so they're all cheering him on. He's looking at them. Then he gets to the coach, and I'm not making this up. He says this loud enough for everyone to hear. He says to his coach, you're lucky to have me on your team. Yeah. You're lucky to have me on your team. I don't know where he gets it. Whether or not people realize it, neighborhoods where you live, well, they're lucky, they're fortunate to have you move in. And maybe that's not your neighborhood. Maybe, well, that could be more like your neighborhood. There's your neighborhood. What's the next one? Oh, no. He, yeah, he's not going to be with us much longer. He's, uh, we're okay with that neighbor. He's just, okay, next one. Okay, there's a, there's a neighborhood we know. Oh, neighborhoods, wherever God places you, is lucky. They're fortunate. They're blessed. Whether they realize or not to have you move in. Here's what I'm imagining. I'm imagining, especially in the world in which we live now, it's a world, uh, it's divided, it's uh, fractured, um, it seems, uh, it's splintering. And yet I'm imagining this day where the best thing that could happen would be for Christians to move into these places, to bring healing and hope and reconciliation. Wouldn't it be something, and, and I've seen this happen before, where people, they don't even know what the Christians believe but they do know that good things begin to happen when they move in, that some of the darkness that surround us, it, well, it becomes more light. Um, I think we're getting to that place where, I don't know, the, that we could be a blessing in that way. As you think about being people of mission, being people on mission, maybe we could get in our minds that God maybe isn't going to call us some to a third world country, but he's going to, we're just going to be faithful with what's in front of us. We're going to be places of shalom, and we're going to bring healing and hope and restoration and reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful for your grace, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love. Lord, may we be empowered by that love each day, and not just for us, but for others. May we begin to get eyes to see and ears to hear how we could, how we could point people to the shalom-bringing God, how we could 
not bring shalom by our own strength or power. My goodness, we could never do that. But somehow by the power of your spirit, you could use us, use this community, use families. Um, I don't know, to, to connect people to you, to connect people to each other. Um, help us to that end. In Christ's name.